The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, it's Laura Nyrider. In season one of False Confessions, we brought you the story of Daniel Villegas, a teenager from El Paso, Texas, who was coerced into giving a false confession to a double murder in 1993. One of the people who ultimately helped free Daniel started out as a complete stranger to him. It's a story of real heroism that proves anyone can have an impact when they put in the effort. Now, we're pleased to tell you that since his acquittal in 2018, Daniel is living in that spirit. He's paying it forward, so to speak. Today, he works with Proclaim Justice, an organization founded by Jason Baldwin, a member of the West Memphis Three. Proclaim Justice helps to free other innocent people across the country. Daniel also bravely shares his story on stage and on social media. He helps to raise awareness of this all-too-common miscarriage of justice. We need advocates like Daniel Villegas and organizations like Proclaim Justice to speak out against wrongful convictions, to tell the world that this really can happen to anyone. It's through their work that we can create a future where no innocent person ever spends another day in prison. Daniel, we thank you for your invaluable work. We're replaying this episode in your honor. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions. I'm Laura Nyrider. And I'm Steve Drizzen. Today we're going to tell you about a case that shows just how much ordinary people can help the wrongly convicted find real justice, even when they start out as strangers. In today's case, an unexpected hero fought for years to turn tragedy into triumph, ending in one of the most dramatic courtroom exonerations I've ever seen. Like so many of our cases at the Center on Wrongful Convictions, Steve first learned about Daniel Villegas through one of his infamous online searches. By this time, I actually had my own news feed, and so did our colleague Josh Tepfer. But Steve had his own reasons for being particularly excited about this case. 
So after all three of us read about a possible false confession case in El Paso, it seemed like destiny for us to get involved in this case. You see, in 2006, El Paso was host to one of the most important conferences in the history of false confessions that brought together many of the leading experts on the subject to the University of Texas. For people like us, this is basically the Olympics meets Coachella. Who was there? Well, Donald Connery, the author of Peter Riley's book, was there. Steve's talking about a book called Guilty Until Proven Innocent. We'll tell you that story in a later episode about a false confession from 1973. And Geasley Good Johnson, the famed Icelandic detective turned psychology professor at King's College of London. You might remember Geasley from our last episode. His scientific expertise helped exonerate Tainapora in New Zealand. Richard Offshe and Richard Leo and Saul Casson, some of the leading experts in the United States on false confessions, were there. We're going to hear from Saul Casson in another episode, too. All of these guys are OG experts in the world of false confessions. They're Steve's heroes, and mine too. So if I've turned into a geek here, you know who to blame. This conference was a watershed moment in the history of false confessions. And the idea of going back to El Paso to work on an actual false confession case... It just seemed like destiny to me. This story starts in El Paso, a border city in West Texas. Now, in the early 1990s, El Paso was a different place than it is today. The crime rate was sky high. There was lots of gang activity. Street violence was a daily problem. And in some neighborhoods, shootings were regular occurrences. We start our story in the early morning hours of April 10th, 1993, Good Friday. It's just after midnight, and four teenagers are walking home from a party, and they find themselves in a rough neighborhood. Three of them, Mondo Lazo, Juan Carlos Medina, and Jesse Hernandez, were 17 years old. The fourth, Bobby Englund, was 18. All of them were good kids. None of them were caught up in gangs or the street life. But they ran into trouble anyway, at the intersection of Electric Street and Trans Mountain Road. That's where a maroon car with tinted windows rolls up behind them and starts following them slowly. Now, just as the four of them start to get scared, the car takes off. It speeds away. But a few minutes later, it comes back. And this time, the driver turns off the headlights. Words are shouted from the car in Spanish, possibly an insult, que putos. And then a series of shots ring out, one right after another. Juan and Jesse take off running as a matter of sheer instinct, and they think that their two friends are running away alongside them. But when Juan and Jesse feel that they've run far enough that it's safe to slow down, they look around them, and they don't see Mondo or Bobby with them at all. They take a deep breath, go back to the scene of the shooting, and they see police lights flashing. Bobby had been shot in the head and died in the street. Mondo had been shot in the stomach and the thigh, He made it a hundred yards to a house up the street where he collapsed in the front yard and died as the residents frantically dialed 911. Now, the police found six shells from a 22 caliber handgun littered on the street right where the car had pulled over. But that's about it in terms of evidence. There were no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing forensic to help them solve this crime. It was going to have to come down to confessions. The El Paso police assigned one of the toughest cops on the force to the Good Friday shooting. An officer whose name we can't share, but an officer who was known as a closer. This guy is so tough, he's even been featured on the TV show Cops. Now, what's a closer? 
a closer is someone who is very skilled at police interrogation. A good closer will gather evidence and then slowly reveal that evidence to a suspect, like peeling off layers of an onion so that the suspect feels like he is nabbed, his goose is cooked, and that leads the suspect to confess. But there are other kinds of closers, closers who use brutality and threats And they don't only use these tactics with suspects. Their modus operandi is to use these tactics with suspects, with witnesses, and sometimes with victims. And they get statements, but those statements are coerced and false statements. This detective, he was in that second camp. Exactly. So the closer is brought in, right, this detective from the El Paso Police Force. He begins investigating the case, and pretty soon he comes across a 17-year-old boy named David Rangel. David is brought into the police station, in theory, about a completely different case. The police had told his mom that they needed to talk to David about some telephone harassment complaints. But when questioning actually began, it had nothing to do with telephone harassment, police began accusing David of committing the Good Friday shootings. Now, later on, David said that the police falsely told him during this interrogation that his friends had implicated him. And David himself was threatened. He says he was told that he was a pretty white boy with green eyes who would be raped in prison if he didn't confess. This scares David, and eventually he starts offering some information. He tells police that his 16-year-old cousin, Daniel Villegas, had been bragging about committing the Good Friday shootings, although he added that everyone was sure Daniel had been joking. You see, Daniel had a reputation as a jokester. He was the type of kid who always boasted about things he hadn't actually done. Daniel had bragged about owning a waterbed when he didn't. He'd bragged about owning a fancy stereo when he didn't. He'd even bragged about being descended from Italian royalty when he definitely wasn't. I want to be descended (laughs) from Italian royalty. Me too, but that kind of luck just ain't for us, Steve. Anyway, when it came to the Good Friday shootings, David never believed Daniel to be serious, not even for a minute. It just wasn't him. Daniel had nothing serious like this in his background. Just like criminals have a modus operandi, many times closers or interrogators have a modus operandi. And in David's case, we saw evidence that we later were able to demonstrate was a modus operandi. Almost always, this interrogator would tell the suspect that his best friend or close associate had implicated them in the crime. Even if that's untrue, right? Always untrue. Right. He would threaten the suspect with the death penalty. And he also told the suspects or the witnesses or the victims in this case that they were going to go to prison and they were going to be raped. I mean, if you're a 17-year-old kid and most of these witnesses were teenagers and you're told that you're looking at going to an adult jail where you're going to be a rape victim, you're going to say just about anything you need to to get out of that interrogation. It's terrifying stuff. And for David, the information he gave was that his cousin Daniel had been joking about committing the Good Friday shootings. He never believed Daniel to be serious. But... This information was enough for the police. They asked David to write out a statement describing what Daniel had said. David wrote that Daniel had bragged about using a shotgun to commit the shootings. But the detective had David take that part out and write the statement a second time without mentioning the type of weapon. Because remember, the shells at the scene had come from a twenty-two, not a shotgun. Even with the detective's edits, David's statement still contained errors— He remembered his cousin bragging about being in a black car, not a maroon car. 
And David said that Daniel described firing a few shots, then getting out of the car, chasing Mondo Lazo to the house, and shooting him again there. That's just not how this crime happened. The shots were all clustered together, not spaced out, and there were no casings found near Mondo's body. But none of this mattered. Now, this was a statement that David regretted giving. It haunted him for the rest of his life that he'd implicated his own cousin in the Good Friday shootings when even he didn't believe that Daniel was guilty. But it was a statement that he felt he had no choice but to give in light of the threats that he was encountering in the interrogation room. So there are errors, errors in David's statement, errors in the statements of other witnesses, errors that the true perpetrator would never have made. That's a red flag. It's a huge red flag, but it doesn't stop these police. Within hours, three more people are brought in for questioning late at night on April 21st. Two friends of Daniel's, Marcos Gonzalez and Rodney Williams, and Daniel himself. They're all questioned, and when Daniel is interrogated, he denies involvement. He tells the police he was babysitting that night with a group of friends, and they were all watching White Men Can't Jump on TV. But here comes that modus operandi. Exactly. Daniel reports being told that if he didn't confess, he would be taken to the desert to get beaten and then to jail, where he would be raped by old men, then sentenced to death by the electric chair. This is how they scared Daniel. This is how they began reducing him down to this feeling of hopelessness. But if he confessed, on the other hand, he was told that he would get leniency because he was just a minor. And after about five hours of interrogation, Daniel ends up signing a confession, typed out by detectives. It's about three o'clock in the morning. He repeats the same errors that David Rangel had made, but he makes other mistakes too. First of all, what about the people in the car? Daniel says the driver was someone nicknamed Popeye and that the front passenger was someone nicknamed Droopy. But the only known Popeye was incarcerated at the time. And the only known Droopy, he was also on house arrest at the time. They could not possibly have been in the car. The color of the car. David had said the car was black. Survivor Jesse Hernandez, he had said the car was maroon. Daniel said they were in a white four-door sedan at the time of the shooting. And finally, Daniel said that he had shot Bobby and Mondo in the back. But it was clear from the medical examiner's report that they had been shot from the front. The more and more you study Daniel's confession, the more you start to see a pattern. The only facts about this murder that he was able to get right are facts that had been publicized about the Good Friday shootings in the local paper, the El Paso Times. Now, this is a pretty big red flag when you can only get facts right when you've read about them in the newspaper. And there's another red flag in this case, too. As soon as the interrogator left the room, Daniel immediately recants to a juvenile probation officer. I didn't do it, he said. And he explained that he only confessed because the cops kept harassing him. He said, I was tired, so I told them what they wanted to hear. And the police and prosecutors ran with that confession, even though it was filled with many false facts and errors. Despite the red flags in his confession, despite the recantation, despite the lack of any physical evidence connecting him to the crime, Daniel Villegas is arrested and charged with capital murder. He's 16 years old. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, Daniel didn't come from a family with a lot of money, but his parents managed somehow to scrape together $10,000 for an attorney. Daniel Villegas' first trial took place in December 1994. At that trial, David Rangel testified, but he maintained that Daniel had been obviously kidding when he'd bragged about the shooting. Rodney and Marcos, Daniel's friends, well, they'd given police statements implicating Daniel when they'd been questioned. But on the witness stand, they said their statements were false and had been obtained through threats of prison rape and other similar threats. And Daniel's attorney called 18 defense witnesses, including several alibi witnesses, who testified that Daniel was with them babysitting and watching TV at the time of the shooting, right? White men can't jump. And Daniel's attorney argued strenuously about all these inconsistencies in Daniel's confession, how it just didn't match the facts of this crime, how it showed every indication of being false. He even called other witnesses who called into question the credibility of this detective. Former prosecutors who had sought indictments for perjury. The defense mounted a huge fight. They made every argument they could. The trial lasted a week, and at the end, there was a hung jury, 11 to 1. But it was 11 to 1 in favor of a conviction, which gave the district attorney some thought that this would be an easier case to convict the next time around. Sure enough, about nine months later, again, Daniel Villegas is tried for the murders of Mondo and Bobby. But the second trial was different. You see, Daniel's parents had spent every penny they had on the first trial, and they couldn't afford a lawyer for the second trial. This time around, Daniel was represented by a court-appointed lawyer, someone who had been assigned the case only two months before the trial began. And so when the second trial rolled around, that lawyer called only one defense witness, 
No alibi witnesses at all. He hardly pointed to any problems with Daniel's confession, even though he had a blueprint for success in the form of the first trial. And he didn't make a full frontal attack on the integrity and credibility of the police officer who got these unreliable statements. And so, on August 24th, 1995, Daniel Villegas was convicted of capital murder. Because he'd been a juvenile at the time of the offense, he wasn't sentenced to death. Instead, he was given two life terms in prison, one for Bobby and one for Mondo. Daniel was a teenager when he went to prison, and he might still be there today if it weren't for a man named John Mimbella. What a man. Now, John is the head of a successful El Paso construction firm, a firm that hired a lot of formerly incarcerated people because John is a guy who believes in second chances. One day in 2005, John Mimbella walks into an El Paso bank And he ends up asking his teller, a woman named Lucy, out on a date. Six months later, we were married. Lucy had three daughters with Daniel's brother. So Daniel was actually Lucy's ex-brother-in-law. I adopted Lucy's daughters two years later, and that's when I learned more about Daniel's case. Now, Lucy often brought the girls to see their grandparents, who were Daniel's parents. And eventually, John started coming along, too. That's where he started to hear stories about their son, Daniel, who was serving life in prison for two murders he didn't commit. At first, I thought, you know, any parent's going to not want to accept that their son might be a killer. I had a lot of faith also in our system. You know, I always believed that uh, if a jury found you guilty, it must have been because they had plenty of evidence against you. So I figured, hey, you know, they must have all kinds of evidence on this kid if they sentence him to life. John was skeptical, but he saw how heartbroken the grandparents were, and he agreed to read through the court papers. Before long, he was dumbstruck. There was no reliable evidence tying Daniel to these shootings at all. And then John Mimbella became a man possessed. I've got a couple of friends, and uh, I asked them if, they could set up a meeting with our DA because I saw some serious problems in Daniel's conviction. Our DA happened to be Jaime Esparza, and he personally trialed Daniel. So I figured, you know what, if there's a mistake, if there's some doubt, you know, he's going to reopen this case. So we had the meeting, and I told him, I go, you know what, I think Daniel's innocent. Something's wrong here. You know, we need to look into it. This DA fought us a lot just to get an evidentiary hearing. After he told me to hire a good appeals lawyer and opened up the case again, he fought us to the nail. Now, this really fired John up. It didn't make any sense. He starts paying for billboards around El Paso that say, Free Daniel Villegas. He starts organizing rallies and protests outside the courthouse. And he hired a private investigator. He read the transcripts, and he was dumbfounded too. He goes, John, I was a homicide detective for 20 years. This case would never have gone to trial. I would never have presented this to my DA if this is all I had. He was very upset. And he goes, yes, John, I'll take your case. John Mambella is invested in Daniel's innocence. And the work he would go on to do ended up costing him personally hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's the patron saint of the Daniel Villegas case. You know, I went down to El Paso 
shortly after John had hired lawyers and investigators to reopen Daniel's case. And when I went into the courthouse, there were like 15 or 20 people walking around with signs saying, free Daniel Villegas. You know, false confessions happen. Justice for Daniel Villegas. John had organized a rally right in front of the courthouse. (laughs) And on the street in front of the courthouse was a truck that had billboards on both sides of it that was driving around the courthouse. So when you walked into the courtroom in El Paso, (laughs) you were just blitzed by this notion that an injustice had occurred and that it needed to be fixed. Exactly. And John brought his entire community into this case, too. There was a manager who worked at his construction company who was a songwriter, and he ends up writing a corrido, a traditional Mexican ballad, about the wrongful conviction of Daniel Villegas. John was so proud of that song that one of the first things he did when I was down in El Paso was to play that for me. It's on YouTube now if you want to hear it. John and the private investigator, right, they want to really find out what happened. And one of the first people they go to speak to is Jesse Hernandez, one of the survivors of the shooting. Of course, Jesse was now a grown man. And John shows Jesse for the first time a copy of Daniel's confession. Jesse's like, John, this is not what happened. This does not look like a confession from somebody who was there. Who took this confession down? And I told him. At that point, Jesse turns pale. And he's like, John, that same detective almost had me confessing to that crime. He shows up that night and he tells me, we know you shot your friends. Your buddy Juan Medina just told us that you did it. And Jesse says that he was just hysterical. He's like, wait a minute, these are my friends. I love my friends. I would never do anything like that to my friends. He goes, well, maybe you blacked out, you know, and you shot them and you didn't even realize it. And at that moment, Jesse goes, well, man, you know, why would my friends say I shot them if I didn't shoot them? Maybe I did do it. And he put his head down on the table and just crying uncontrollably. Had it not been for his mom that stepped in, he says he was almost ready to confess. So Jesse's like, the last thing I want is somebody innocent spending the rest of their life in prison. That could have been me. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, 
Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This was a absolute bolt from the blue when John heard this story from Jesse Hernandez, and it only motivated him to continue pounding the pavement. Eventually, John hires a highly skilled El Paso trial lawyer, a man named Joe Spencer. Now, Joe files a state petition for a writ of habeas corpus, arguing, among other things, that Daniel's lawyer at his second trial had been ineffective for failing to call Daniel's alibi witnesses. There's a hearing planned. It's going to happen in 2011. And in the run-up to that hearing, that's when Steve and I first heard about this case. Yeah, we heard about it through our news feeds. And this time, what made this special is it wasn't just me who came in to the office the next day. It was me and Laura, and so did our third attorney, Josh Tepfer. That's right. All three of us <laughs> got this news feed at the same time. A case of a juvenile who had confessed to a crime he didn't commit and who was trying to reopen his case through a new hearing. At the hearing, Jesse Hernandez takes the stand for the first time. Jesse testifies that Daniel's confession didn't match what actually happened to him and his friends. Daniel's alibi witnesses also testified, saying that they were with Daniel on the night of the crime. And remember Dr. Richard Leo, one of the experts from that false confession conference in El Paso back in 2006? He took the stand, too, and testified that Daniel's statement showed every sign of being false. There was even evidence introduced that two other known gang members had threatened Mondo Lazo's life right before the shooting, and they'd bragged about killing him afterwards. When one of those two gang members was called to testify, he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and refused to answer anything. And Joe Spencer also mounted, again, a direct attack on the integrity of the detective who had taken the false witness statements, who had almost gotten a false confession from the crime victim, and who had gotten the confession from Daniel. And one of the things he discovered, which is pretty incredible, was that one of the tactics that this detective had used in another case was that he would enter an interrogation room dressed in a smock. Now, why would anybody wear a smock? Well, he tried to mislead the suspect into thinking that they were speaking to a medical person, a doctor. Unbelievable. Instead of a police officer. And when the judge heard that evidence, uh, his eyes rolled back into his head. Eventually, we had an opportunity to file an amicus brief about the unreliability of Daniel's confession and add that to everything that Joe Spencer was already doing in the courtroom. And we emphasized how vulnerable a teenager like Daniel would have been to making a false confession. The hearing concluded, and then we waited. The judge took nine months to reach a decision. 
But on August 17, 2012, Judge Sam Madrano recommended that Daniel Villegas receive a new trial. Judge Madrano concluded that Daniel's trial lawyer had provided ineffective assistance by failing to investigate or introduce evidence of the unreliability of Daniel's confession. Now, Judge Madrano's decision was a fabulous victory, but it was only a recommendation. It had to be adopted by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. It was at that point that we joined the team to craft a presentation to that court that we hoped it would accept. As that appeal process is ongoing, Daniel's lawyer, Joe Spencer, asked Judge Madrano to free Daniel on bond, let him go home, as the appeal process dragged on. And on January 14th, 2014, after nearly two decades in prison, Daniel was released on bond, straight into the arms of John Mimbella, who drove him home in a brand new shiny red convertible. It was almost like a ticker tape parade. Daniel was free. He got started living right away as soon as he was released. He got married to a woman named Amanda, whom he'd met when he was behind bars. And in short order, they had two beautiful children. But even though Daniel is walking out of the prison into the arms of a crowd of supporters, it could have all been taken away from him. And the Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas is a court that has a reputation of being hostile to defendants' claims, especially claims regarding their actual innocence. So it was anything but a sure thing that Judge Medrano's decision would be affirmed. Long story short, the high court affirms Judge Medrano's ruling. Yes, Daniel Villegas deserves another trial and a chance to prove his innocence. But the DA didn't get around to the new trial until 2018. So for four years, Daniel's living with a sword hanging over his head. If he goes to trial and loses, he'll be back in prison for life. This is enormously stressful. The months and years are ticking by. Daniel's starting a family. He's working at John Mimbella's construction company, tasting freedom and cherishing it. What does the DA do? He asks Daniel to enter an Alford plea. Stay free as long as you plead guilty. It's such a tempting offer, especially to somebody who was locked up for a crime they didn't commit as a teenager and had to spend two decades or more in prison suffering under the weight of that wrongful conviction. But now Daniel's got other people he has to think about, his wife and their children. Daniel considered the Alfred plea option seriously because it meant that he wouldn't have to go back to trial. He would be a convicted murderer, but at least he would have his freedom. Of course, he was tempted to put the whole thing behind him. But Daniel lived in El Paso, Texas, and El Paso had become home to a small community of wrongly convicted individuals. Among that community was a man named Jason Baldwin. Now, that's a name that true crime junkies might recognize because Jason Baldwin was a member of the West Memphis Three, a group of three teenagers from Arkansas who had been accused of the 1993 killings of three eight-year-old boys. One of them, Jesse Miss Kelly, had falsely confessed. And the three of them were convicted, two sentenced to life in prison, and the third, Damian Eccles, sent to death row in Arkansas. They fought their case for 17 years. Steve and I were fortunate enough to join Damian Eccles' legal team at the very end. And they were freed only when the state of Arkansas made them an offer. All three of you enter Alfred, please. Say you're guilty of these crimes, and then we'll let you out. 
Now, this was an easier decision when it came to Damien. He was on death row. But Jason, who had been sentenced to life in prison, wrestled with it. He didn't want to admit to a crime he didn't commit, even to secure his own freedom. Ultimately, he chose to accept the offered plea to help save Damien's life. One of the consequences of entering an Alfred plea is that you can't get compensated through state compensation statutes. The Alfred plea is considered a plea of guilty, and that disqualifies you from recovering any compensation. Prosecutors dangle freedom so long as they can secure guilty pleas in return and prevent themselves from being sued down the road. It's a tool of injustice. It happens way too often. It was used in the Robert Davis case. It was used in the West Memphis 3 case. And it almost worked on Daniel Villegas. You see, Jason Baldwin had moved from Arkansas to Texas, where he became involved in a wrongful conviction advocacy organization called Proclaim Justice and joined John Mambella's fight to free Daniel Villegas. Jason Baldwin became one of his closest friends and confidants as Daniel weighed whether to accept that Alfred plea. Daniel told me, John, he goes, if I take this deal, all this work that you did is for nothing. So we called Jason Baldwin for his advice, and he said, Let's talk about it before you decide anything. And he tells Daniel, you know, I I can't tell you what to do. You have a family. But in my case, you know, there's no way that I would do it again. It bothers me every day of my life. So just think hard about this because it could bother you the rest of your life too. And with Jason Baldwin's counseling and support, Daniel Villegas found his courage and turned down that unjust Alfred plea offer. He decided to go to trial. The stakes were so high at this trial. Daniel had tasted freedom. He was starting to live the kind of life he had always dreamed of. But here he was back in that courtroom, a place where the last time had ended in a conviction. Now, this trial was very different because this time... Daniel's team of lawyers, we succeeded in getting his confession thrown out as involuntary and coerced. And without that confession, there is precious little evidence to go on. The state presented a case to the jury. The jury deliberated. And in October of 2018, a verdict came back. Now, this is one of the highest profile cases in the history of El Paso at this point. And the courtroom is packed with supporters of Daniel Villegas. Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three is there. The local wrongful conviction advocacy organization Proclaim Justice is there. And John and Lucy Mambella sitting in the front row right behind Daniel and his lawyers. They are there. And when the judge asks Daniel to stand up for the verdict, his knees buckle. He almost collapses. He has to hear whether this beautiful life that he has started reconstructing is going to continue or is it going to end. Daniel's lawyers actually have to help him stand up. And he was able to stand just long enough to hear the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant, Daniel Villegas, not guilty of... Not guilty. And the courtroom erupts in a sound of both cheers and incredible relief. And then he collapsed. Under the weight of a lifetime's worth of fighting, he had finally been exonerated. It was over. It was a feeling that I don't think I'm ever going to feel again in my life. 
Hey, Daniel, is that you? Yeah, that's me. Tell me about your kids. How many kids you got now? There's four all together. The man and my wife told me she was pregnant. I remember I told her, man, I'm too old to be a dad. And right <laughs> at that time, my daughter got pregnant too. And I was like, oh man, you know, I'm, I'm too young to be a grandpa. <laughs> what do you tell your kids about what happened to you? The, the two little ones are too small to know about it. Uh, they don't understand yet. Like I love when they tell me life ain't fair. I tell them, tell me about it. I do 19 years in prison. Tell me how life ain't fair. Clean your room. <laughs> I know that the Wrongful Conviction podcast played an important role in your case, too. Yes, Amanda, she's really into the wrongful conviction community, right? She's like a devoted fan to Jason Flan. So when they came to me with that offer, please, you know, they were just telling me if I signed to see the paper, the case is closed. Yeah. So I was going to sign it almost. And that's when Amanda jumped in and she's like, no, 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 I, I know all about this offer, please. You know, Jason Flan told me about this. She educated me on that. And then that's when we decided not to take that plea deal. Daniel, you're an incredible human being. To see you as a free man at Innocence Network conferences, at events for proclaimed justice, it makes my heart sing. You're a symbol of endurance. It's been our honor to know you and to tell your story today. Wrongful Conviction, False Confessions is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Special thanks to our executive producer, Jason Flom, and the team at Signal Company Number 1, executive producer Kevin Wardus, senior producer Ann Pope, and additional production and editing by Connor Hall. Special thanks to Jaji Hammer for additional script editing and for wrangling and writing like a madwoman. Our music was composed by Jay Ralph. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Laura Nyrider. And you can follow me on Twitter at S. Drizzen. For more information on the show, visit wrongfulconvictionpodcast.com. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram at wrongfulconviction, on Facebook at wrongfulconvictionpodcast, and on Twitter at wrongconviction. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.